The following podcast is brought to you by iSelect Fund. iSelect is dedicated to helping investors create a diversified portfolio of venture investments through their financial advisors. Learn how to start your own venture portfolio today by visiting iSelectFund.com. On today's podcast, Cofactor Genomics COO Dr. David Messina will discuss how his company is working to make personalized medicine a reality by focusing on the potential of RNA as a diagnostic tool. Unlike DNA, which is set in stone at birth, our RNA changes on a minute-by-minute basis and acts as a barometer of our health. Led by three former researchers of the Human Genome Project, Cofactor Genomics is developing a patent-pending RNA-based technology that will allow medical researchers to detect specific RNA molecular markers in even small, low-quality tissue samples. This will make 100 times more patient specimens available for analysis and will open the door to massive big data-style databases for use in both drug and treatment development. So David, we're, the way we normally do this is we sort of walk through background and, Great. and hear your story and Great. sort of disc- you know, Cofactor is doing some really exciting things and so we'll spend some time talking on that, but I also love technology and trying to understand what's happening next. I think in iSelect we have this opportunity to see cool emerging technology and, and when I tell other people that they just no idea what's and so it's normal stuff for us. Right, but not everybody knows what's going on. Not everyone knows what's going on. It sort of gives them some excitement. So, but I'm really intrigued about you. You're now at Cofactor, right? Um, part of the founding team. And I'm sort of intrigued about how you got here. So, sure. How did you? Yeah. So, become a computational <laughs> biologist. I mean, you know, I never expected to be. Actually, I uh, when I went into college, I was thinking I would do international law or maybe political science and. After trying to do that for a couple of years, I, I realized that wasn't for me, and I, I switched gears completely and was really looking for something 180 degrees different and ended up thinking about biology. And I had the opportunity to work with uh, a very talented guy um, at uh, Argonne National Laboratory. It's a, a national laboratory just outside of Chicago who is a mathematician and computer scientist uh, originally, and he had met uh, Carl Woese, who... Uh, kind of one of the pioneers of computational biology. In, in 1977, he, Carl Woese, had, had uh, discovered or, or postulated that there's an entire third domain of life um, called the archaea. And so you think about eukaryotes being, you know, uh, multicellular organisms, prokaryotes being like bacteria. And he was saying that there's actually a whole third domain that's kind of somewhere, some parts that are like multicellular, some parts that are like single-celled organisms. Um, he predicted this using uh, looking at uh, RNA molecules, um, the very early kind of uh, sequencing uh, that was available at that time. And he looked at enough of them to, to be able to figure out that there was, in fact, this whole third branch of life. Um, it, nobody believed him for a long time, and, and it turned out to be true. And, and, and now we know this, is, and this is accepted uh, many years later. So, so Ross Overbeek met Carl and became enamored of applying computational techniques to biology. So when I met Ross, uh, this was uh, just after a team had published the first free-living, the genome of the first, the first genome sequence of a free-living organism. So Methanococcus gianasii, this was done by Craig what, Venter's group. What, what uh, year was this? This would have been uh, 1990. 
1996. Okay. And so Ross was a unique individual in that even at that time, this is when we have one genome, he started thinking about, and we talked about, well, what do you do when you have 10 genomes or 100 genomes or 1,000? What can you do in terms of comparative genomics to better understand the world? So in a nutshell, you can think about it where the, the you know, you, once you have the whole parts list, that's what a genome is really, mm -hmm. is, is, is how to make an organism. And once you know what all, what all the genes are, then you can look at two organisms or two groups of organisms and say, the parts that are the same are likely to be fundamental to life. You know, they're all in, uh, occurring in, in lots of different organisms. And the parts that are different, that are maybe unique to an organism, explains what is unique about that or some characteristic about that mm -hmm. organism. So being able to think about genomics before genomics had even really started, um, that was one of those times in life where, you know, I had clarity that this was going to happen and going to be an incredibly interesting and influential um, area to be in. And so I, I had to get into it. And so that's really what got me started in genomics. And so working with somebody like that that can see the future, are they just wicked smart and they just can't explain how they got there? Or are they clairvoyant? Or what, what, what would you, what did you see there being present in that phase? What, what can you tell us about a person like that? I think it's, it's a hard question to answer. I, I think that assembling the information that you have and thinking logically about the consequences of and the, uh, the implications of, of that information um, can lead to startling insight. Um, that it, you, you can see things that other people can't readily see. And, and so f my assumption is that for somebody like that, it, it takes a certain personality for sure, mm -hmm. but I think it also takes somebody who has open to thinking about in, in those kinds of expansive ways and really being uh, open to unexpected or startling conclusions. Challenge the conventional wisdom. Yeah. Um, but I just, you know, understand the basis really, really, really well, perfectly, and then challenge some of the convention around it. Yeah, and, and, and coming up with hypotheses and thinking, well, okay, can I test that? Can I, you know, is that really going to be true or is that true today? Yep. You know, can I test that assumption based on what I know now? And is that what computational biology lets you do more of? I, I think that's absolutely one of the things that I find so exciting about it. So, you know, so, so what is computational biology? Really, it's being able to apply computer science, com computational techniques to understand biology. And that was something that was not really possible in a, in a high throughput or, or large scale way until very recently. Uh, you know, like I said, the, the first genome 20 years ago. Um, that, so it's a very new field. Uh, yeah, and when the gene, the Nobel Prize for the, the first Nobel Prize for the gene was like in the 70s? Well, so the techniques that were for mapping and splicing genes, I think, right, were, were in the 70s. Um, certainly, you know, DNA discovered in 1953. Yeah. So certainly, um, 
genetics stretches back, depending on how you count it, back to the beginning of the 20th century, but really being able to uh, read the DNA code and by extension uh, RNA and, and what, you know, the, how genes are expressed inside a, a cell has come very recently. And so one gene at a time was really how genetics was conducted until, until uh, high throughput sequencing became available, which really went, was done on a massive scale for the first time during the Human Genome Project, or the, actually the, there was a, a, a small worm that was sequenced before that. Yep. Um, right, so, so in those days... What was that worm called again? I can't recall. C. elegans. So, and that was done here at Washington University also. So in fact, that was, in a sense, so Bob Waterston, one of the uh, architects of the Human Genome Project here at Washington University, was one of two places in the world that really led that project. He was a worm biologist, and so, you know, he, he I think, was excited about applying the technology first to worm and, and then really seeing where we could take that. In those days, and, you know, this was still fairly high technology. You were using uh, uh, lasers to read the DNA, but it was very low throughput still. You know, you've got a, a large kind of benchtop machine. You would have um, what is a very... Uh, fine, uh, high-quality uh, jello, essentially, that was pressed in between two glass plates. And you'd, you'd have it uh, set up with an anode on one end and a cathode on the other, so basically like a battery. So DNA is negatively charged, and so if you inject DNA uh, that has been slightly chemically modified on, on one end, you can flow it through uh, this, this gel, this high-quality gel, and then you can have a, uh, it separates that out by size, and you can have a laser hit it and read off each letter of DNA. And so this was done, we could do in one single run of, of one of these old machines, maybe 60, 70,000 letters of DNA we could read at a time. And so the Human Genome Project, the Human Genome is about 3.3 billion letters of DNA. So you can imagine how many gels, how many of those, those uh, kind of old-fashioned old sequencing runs were necessary to do it. Um, you know, that's kind of the story of the project is that it took many thousands of those over with many hundreds of people over tens of years and all the, the engineers and, and uh, computational people to analyze the data to, to assemble that back into one to, to the chromosomes. to the to And complete so we're sequence. talking, so just to keep stepping through so people understand how you got here. So you went to go into law, decided not to go into law, not in college. <laughs> right. <laughs> For University of Illinois, you you uh, as we're sort of approaching into the '98 time frame, mm -hmm. the front front edge of the Human Genome Project, you came down for your master's in computational biology. Or that's biology. right. So so right. It down was here here in Washington University in St. Louis. Um, so and actually, there was a little step in between. I was I was trying to do human genetics um, or was doing human genetics at the University of Chicago uh, before the human genome was finished. So in those days, you know, we were, we had a, we were looking at a, um, an inherited form of, uh, of muscular dystrophy. So we had, you know, the cutting edge technology, we had three generations of this family. And at that time we were excited. It was a good result to narrow down the location of the causative gene for that disease to about a million letter chunk of the human genome. So about you know dozens of genes were in there, and that Needle was needle in the haystack. Yeah, and that was that was state of the art in in 1997. So I was really interested in genomics. I looked around for where would be the best place to study that, 
And out of the 15 or so people in the world who were computational biologists at that time, nine of them were here at Washington University. And so pretty easy choice to come here and, and study with them and, and, uh, and take part in the, the Human Genome Project. There. So I think some have forgotten about the Human Genome Project. I recall I was here in aerospace at the time driving around the car and constantly hearing about both what was going on here in Cambridge in terms of human genome. In terms of the, the core concept, what was, what was going on with the Human Genome Project? What was the sort of so main the I, charter? Yeah, the idea is that if we could determine the parts list, the whole uh, set of genes and the, really the structure, the genome structure itself, uh, that's the blueprint of life for what makes a human. Um, and by being able to have that knowledge, we could then start to understand how humans are different and alike from other species. So understand the function of each and every gene. So remember, up until that point, you'd study a gene at a time or a small, small collections of a gene at once. So if you, all, if you don't have the complete set of genes, if you don't know what all of them are, it's very hard to know, well, is this, you know, or how, how do the function of different genes overlap? It, you know, if you, it, how they interrelate, what are the pathways where these, um, the chemical pathways where these genes interact. And so having that information allows us to not only understand the fundamentals of human biology, but also allows us to think about things like uh, eradicating disease and, and how the human body interacts with disease. And we're just getting to see the fruits of that today. Today. Today, so 20 years later. Human genome. And, you know, I always imagine the human genome is sequencing the human genome is on scale with landing on the moon. Yeah, it's it, a massive, it, it, massive a enterprise massive and a I think the, a huge a billion dollar underwriting for at least a billion dollars. Right. And, you know, when I talked about the old technology that was used actually to accomplish the human genome, they knew at the beginning they would have to create new technology, new higher throughput technology to finish that on schedule. And indeed they did. And, and you, you brought up Greg Venter's name. I recall there was a little bit of wait, big government funded program. Good. Mm -hmm. There was an effort between here and the Broad Institute. That's right. To go ahead with it. And then Greg Venter said, oh, I can do this faster, quicker, cheaper. Right. So, so what was the insight on that? So, so I think the other piece of that is that they saw an opportunity to, to, do, do, to do two things. So one, to use all the data, the public, publicly funded, right? So public data that the Human Genome Project had generated. And two, to generate some of their own data and combine those two using a new um, computational technique for, um, for assembling the jigsaw puzzle into a full genome. And by being able to do that on a private basis, I believe, although I'm not sure that their intention was to uh, do private research there at a nonprofit institute that would then also identify um, areas to, um, for a commercial enterprise to mm -hmm. be able to um, to build off of that work. So um, both parties in, you know, what the, what was portrayed as a race to publication for the, between Craig Venter's group and, and the public group, both parties were, um, actually have contributed to our ability to, to do this stuff today through um, the, 
the work that the public, you know, really the fundamental work that the public side did, and then and the computational techniques that were introduced by um, by the Venter uh, Venter team are are still in use today for assembling genomes. That those concepts. So we're sort of in the 98 to 2000 time frame. You can continue on in the Human Genome Project for a while? Right. So I, I worked as a staff scientist at the Genome Institute, uh, now the McDonald Genome Institute here in St. Louis. And um, there were other genomes to, to, uh, to sequence. So we mm -hmm. did um, lots of other uh, organisms, mammals in, in particular. Um, I worked on the, the chimpanzee genome and things like this. And can we continue to refine the techniques? And it took a really interesting turn in about the mid-2000s when a new breed of sequencing machines started to appear, which were much higher throughput than the ones I described earlier, which allowed us to do a lot more sequencing and a lot, a lot more in a lot less time. And so we talk about Moore's law with computers, right? Where this idea that every 18 months or so, the amount of power or really transistor density that you have per unit uh, doubles. So you get about twice as much compute speed um, every 18 months according to, to Moore's law. So with these new types of sequencers, these uh, next gen or massively uh, parallel sequencing machines, the increase in sequencing output per cost over the last 10 years or so since then has been faster than Moore's law. So actually accelerating faster than what we've seen in computers. And we all know how uh, dramatic the, the difference is in, mm -hmm. in, in computational power over the last 10 years. So think about how impactful that change in just raw sequencing output um, and capability, um, what an impact that has um, in our ability to generate the raw data that we can then analyze to understand um, not only human biology, but actually biology in general. And so that, uh, you know, we're going to get to cofactor here in a moment. How did, how did you go from there to cofactor? Right. So, so like uh, all scientists. Two levels from a, you're a scientist in a lab mm -hmm. and cofactors an entrepreneurial operation. <laughs> sure. So, and then two, what was the inspiration of technology that sort of led to the point that you said, hey, here's the time to go create a company? Sure. So as a scientist who started in academia, like most of them law. do. Law. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> law and then, and then, then academia. In academia. I can understand you why we went away from law. But, right. Uh, but, uh, so uh, academic science, basic research, the goal is the creation of new knowledge. It's a very important thing. However, we have been able, I think, to accumulate new knowledge much faster than we have been able to apply that new knowledge. And to me, this is something that always bothered me. I, I would, we, we have all these great discoveries, but until we can really see a tangible impact from them, um, you know, they're they're not reaching their full potential. And so I was really uh, motivated to apply a lot of the amazing research that, that was going on and turn that into something, commercialize that into something that would have a real impact on, on people. Um, so why do you think that is? There are lots of researchers who go their entire career never having that angst. I think it's, 
in part because I, I, I think there are plenty of people and there is already lots of, of new knowledge being created. So there's, there's plenty of that already happening, you know, and working on the applied side um, to, to trickle more of that through to, to the end user, if you will, um, made sense. I think also from a, my personality, um, seeing the tangible outcome or benefit uh, meant more to me than, than the, abstract, uh, the abstract creation of knowledge. So you saw that opportunity to take the next step. What, right. How did, and then how did for Cofactor, right. So working at the Genome Institute, you know, remember there was an army of 300 people, and that's just with the team in St. Louis that was at its peak, you know, around, around that many people working on the human genome and really uh, cranking out that sequence. When, these new, when this new breed of sequencers came out that were much faster um, and generating a lot more data, we saw the potential of these, and, and so did everybody else. And uh, an institute like, uh, like the one we were at was really built around large uh, federally funded grants, projects like those on a large scale. They weren't set up to, to meet the needs of a commercial user. And so when not only uh, other academic labs started knocking on the door, wanting to take advantage of this new high-throughput sequencing technology, but also companies like Pfizer or other pharma companies wanted to use it. The Genome Institute was not set up to service the, their, those needs, and so that's a business opportunity. And so that's really how Cofactor started was, we, you know, we, could, we realized we could offer what the Genome Institute was offering uh, on a commercial, on a commercial uh, as a commercial enterprise, and, and, and so that's how the company was born. Now, fast forward to today, um, and we're really taking that, what we've learned over the course of having worked with some of the largest pharmaceutical companies in the world over the last several years in, uh, in, in helping them perform their research, we've realized that there's a great opportunity to take a lot of what we learned and, and turn it into a more clinical applications and more clinical focus. So before we dive into that, um, the day you left Wash U, what was it you, you and Jared? What I mean that was there a moment of utter total fear, or was it clear, or what was the the entrepreneurial emotion going through your your mind at that point? Sure, I I remember talking to Jared about this because uh, Jared was really the driving force there, and he had and it, it helped. Could you describe who Jared is? Sure. So Jared Glasscock, our our CEO and founder. So he was faculty. So he. The backstory is that he and I met in 1998. We both came to WashU to study computational biology for the same reason, because it was the place to do it. And um, and soon after that, we met at the institute our our third co-founder uh, John Armstrong, who's a brilliant molecular biologist and leads our research team. So I remember talking to Jared about that moment when he decided to to jump ship, and and he. I think had that same kind of moment of clarity where he saw that this was going to work, that this was a good idea. And so the risk of doing it didn't seem like that much of a risk to him because he knew it was risky that or it not to work. do it. Right. That, and I think also because genomics at that time and still today and, and computational biology is a, such a growing field and there's so much work to be done that even if it didn't work out, uh, we'd be okay. We'd we'd be able to to continue on and find something else to do. And so you you started initially in a business supporting 
pharma for something they needed right then. Right. They needed the best the best guys that knew the best technology that could operate on a commercial basis. And yep. so And there weren't that many people doing it that at, at that time. So did you get a PO right away and Right. So uh, I think when the company Did you even know what to stores, write on the PO? <laughs> right. <laughs> Other than the dollar number at the bottom? <laughs> yeah. I think when the company opened its doors we were lucky to have several months worth of orders already already stacked up. So we were cash flow positive from the beginning as a uh, and had really didn't take on any uh, external investment at the, at the beginning. And at that point, it was a bit more of a services business. With, That's right. With deep in, uh, but at a high bill rate. Yes. Higher than a law, lawyer would get paid. <laughs> well, I don't, know, <laughs> I don't know if we made it quite that far. That hourly rate's still pretty high. But, but yes, exactly. So uh, we had the expertise um, both on the molecular side, so w- taking the genetic material, turning it into a form that the sequencer could read, generating the data, and then doing the computational analysis to make it meaningful. Um, so we had all those components. And so you did that for several years with Cofactor, and you reached a point where you saw an opportunity to go to the next level. Right. So it happened in a couple of phases. So at the beginning, it was all about DNA sequencing and then a little bit about RNA sequencing. So um, perhaps it's worth a sidebar on onto the differences there. Yes. So, so DNA, we've been talking about is the instruction book for an organism, for, for, for a human being, and if we're talking about the human genome. And that DNA doesn't change really over the course of your life. So the, the DNA that you have when you're born is pretty much the same as the DNA that you have today. And so when we think about disease, what DNA tells you is really it gives you an estimate of the chance, the likelihood that maybe you'll develop a particular disease or not. For some diseases, it's much more certain based on your DNA that you, you know what's going to happen. For most diseases, it's really just more of, a, of an estimate or a probability that, that you'll develop a disease. So interesting and useful information, yes, but it's, it's really just giving you a probability or an estimate. RNA, on the other hand, is not the same as what you had when you were born. RNA is really all of the genes in your cell, you know, in each cell in your body, turned on or off at a given time. And so RNA can tell you exactly what's going on at a particular moment. And it can tell you right now whether your body is developing disease or, is, uh, or right now whether it's responding to a treatment. And so that power, that ability to see what's going on inside a cell today, not just an estimate, but actually what's happening is very powerful. And as we started to do more and more RNA sequencing at Cofactor and working with uh, we became experts in that and, and worked with pharma companies around their programs to understand uh, RNA and their clinical programs. We saw an opportunity to really take RNA out of the discovery side, the research side, and into uh, the clinical side, into something that would be even more applied, that would make even more of an impact on people. And just put some context in the sequencing process, what 23andMe now does you see the TV show, and all of a sudden you get these cool new discoveries out of right. 23andMe. If they, had, if you tried to do that same analysis in 96 or 98, how long would that have taken? Oh, right. So I think 23andMe um, looks at uh, about a million individual locations in, out of the 3 billion letters of your DNA. It looks at about a million of them. And 
they do it on a very specialized chip, almost like a computer chip, where they can put a put your sample on it and, and get a, a readout on that. Um, Twenty years ago, if you were doing it using the old sequencing technology, it would have taken probably at least a year to do that for oh. for one person. Actually, the the studies I did at University of Chicago was doing that kind of what we call genotyping, determining. Pre- somebody's genetic code or DNA at particular spots in the genome. Um, I did, uh, I ran a gel a day, one of these old sequencing gels a day for a year um, to, to, to get enough uh, information for, uh, for the people in that small study. Huh. So you decided to go into a clinical application. And so tell us what that is. Right. So because RNA gives a real-time readout of what's going on inside your body, um, we realized that um, it has several, op- there are several opportunities to apply that to medicine, and so, as a, particularly as a diagnostic. And so can we help drug developers understand which patients are likely to respond to their drug? Can we, can we help doctors understand which treatment is going to be effective for their patient? Those kinds of questions would have a tremendous impact on our ability to to practice medicine today, and indeed, that's exactly what we've decided to do. And that's that's what our products are built around is is helping both drug developers and and doctors understand what's going on in each individual patient on a on a personalized or precision basis, rather than treating every patient as the average patient, which is how really medicine is practiced today. When a drug uh, is is treated when somebody is treated with uh, a drug it's it's because that's what work works for most people most of the time and what we'd like to do is is help clinicians move to a situation where based on what's going on in that particular patient's body that we can see with RNA they'll be able to know or what is likely to be effective for that patient with that particular disease so they could pick the right drug or treatment to give them, decide whether they should give them a little or a lot. That's right, exactly. So you can imagine that today, when you're treating people with what works most of the time for most people, these treatments are, in some cases, very expensive. And so you put a patient on the drug, you wait a few weeks or a month to see whether it's working, You've not only spent a lot of money, but if it doesn't work, then you're switching them to another drug and maybe even have to go to a third drug. And so it's a very expensive and wasteful process, but more often it takes time, precious time that some of these patients may not have to give to, to find the right treatment. And do you have any sense, it's a, it's a broad question, but if you think through the conventional means of giving somebody a drug and it not working, and then the disappointment or whatever the consequence of that, you know, death, whatever, um, versus the opportunity of being able to tailor these drugs. Do you have a sense of what kind of impact that would have? We think that, well, if you think about how many people come down with cancer every year. So, you know, current estimates are that between the U.S., U.K., and Canada, probably 50% of the population will at one time or another have cancer, and 25% of those will succumb to that cancer. 
we're talking about millions of people every year. And as we develop better medications and as we develop approaches like cofactors to better choose those medications, I would imagine the impact would be enormous. But certainly billions of dollars and countless lives that could be impacted by being able to be more precise about the, the treatment process. And in, in terms of at the treatment level, can you give us an example of where it's been a, this type of technology has been ex, ex, explicitly used and changed? Yes. Yeah, so Changed an outcome? So one of the motivating stories for us actually happened right here in St. Louis. So there is a, a leukemia researcher at Washington University named Lucas Wortman. And he tragically uh, came down with the very leukemia that he was studying. Being at a world-class center for medicine and genomic research, his physicians were able to apply all of the latest techniques to trying to find a treatment for, for him, including DNA sequencing. They, they sequenced his genome and that was not able to find anything helpful for his treatment. It was only when they went to his RNA that they were able to see that there was a particular gene which was uh, being turned on way too high, it was, it was overexpressed, um, that they found uh, an, an opportunity. There's actually a, an already approved FDA uh, approved drug for correcting that the overexpression of that gene. They uh, gave Lucas Wortman this, uh, this drug and very quickly he responded to it and his uh, course of his, his disease reversed drastically. And so that was information that from his RNA that was able to, um, to, to change the course of his treatment. He was in probably the best possible place for, for being able to, to have that outcome at a, at a place where, um, where genomic medicine is, is um, the, the, you know, it's at the cutting edge here. We want to make sure that everybody has that same opportunity that Lucas Wortman had to be able to, to use RNA as a, as a diagnostic for So it becomes as easy, easy as 23 and me. That's right. At, a, at any, at your corner, urgent care clinic. <laughs> so That's speak. right. And, and this, this is, we're at the beginning of the path, but this is something that we believe will be possible in the very near future. And um, so what is the future? You, you've got, you've got Cofactor. We're an investor in Cofactor. Um, we're intrigued with it for all the reasons you have mentioned. You've got products coming down that are both a uh, a clinical product and then a product that that helps in the research phase as you look at your next generation products down the road or what you're going to be doing down the road what what will be standard of care using this type of technology five ten years from now right so I think it's it's an expansion of the same approaches that we're taking today so today, the, the products we have, we have Pinnacle and Paragon. So Pinnacle is, is focused for the clinician, for the cancer doctor who 
is trying to choose the right treatment for their patient. And so we're giving them information about that patient's RNA to, to do that. And then we have Paragon, which is giving insight into uh, the, how the immune system and the tumor uh, are interacting. And that's, that's really interesting. I'd love to talk about that some more. So both of those um, are right now focused on uh, cancer, particular types of cancer. But those, we've really built a technology platform that can be applied to many more types of diseases. And indeed, we like to think of it as the, all the diseases, which is most of them, that, that Meaning estimate. Meaning cancer, neurological, other, right. other systems. Parkinson's, yeah, exactly. Um, even heart disease. Um, there are lots and lots of diseases for which just the estimate that we get from DNA um, is, is not enough. And so we think that um, the same approaches that we're applying to cancer today will be able to apply to other diseases tomorrow. So if a gene test has one unit of benefit, RNA has a 10-unit benefit? Yes. And right now, a clinician who's worried about immunotherapy can use your product to help assist and guide them in their clinical decisions? Right. So the... So the, so the products in development today are aimed at the, the clinician and then also at the, the drug developer in the, in the immuno-oncology space. So, yep. so there's this tremendous uh, new uh, class of cancer drugs um, called immunotherapies, which are actually using the body's own immune system to fight the cancer. Uh, and it's had a huge impact already in our ability to, to treat cancer. So, uh, so Jimmy Carter and geoblastoma right. is, a, is an example. Of, exactly. Uh, that was on 60 Minutes is a good example. It's a, it's a great example. And, and you know, what we have seen is that in, for some cancers, what was previously a, maybe about a 30% survival rate over three to five years is now more like a 60 to 70% survival rate. So that is a huge, huge impact, particularly when we talk about cancers that are very common. So lung cancer, uh, there are about 150,000 cases a year. And standard of care is more around uh, using DNA to, to, to type the treatment? That's right. So D Exactly. So DNA is being used to help guide those treatments today. So with those types of opportunities, with our um, Paragon assay, being able to give much better insight into what's going on inside the, the tumor, is the tumor trying to evade the immune system's attack? Does the tumor look like it's particularly susceptible to the the? So you're getting a much of, more tactical view of mm -hmm. it's not just hey it's getting bigger or smaller, but what other systems are operating to help it get bigger or smaller and reactions and right and 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 for people who are developing drugs around this, we can even tell them what types of immune cells are. Are infiltrating the tumor and in what amounts and so that information is really helpful in in determining not only is the treatment effective but also in what way and for what patient so which are the patients that are going to be most likely to respond to that so that type of information is essentially not not available um, with as much detail and and as broadly um, today so today you might have to run three different, completely different types of, of tests. One of them, talking about trying to identify the immune cells that are present, you would really only be able to see if you were working with a biopsy that was fresh out of the operating room and, 
and very rarely is that possible. And, and even if, if, if so, it requires a very technically challenging and expensive uh, and, I uh, mean, asset. this is a part of the reason we invested is, is that there are people that sequence RNA, but you guys are fantastic at dealing with more challenged samples that, that actually in a, in a right, so production environment, you're going to run into other challenges in terms of getting a good sample. Absolutely. I mean, it so, seems like a mundane thing, getting a good sample, but it... Well, most people don't know that most clinical specimens are stored in, in a preserved way. So it's, it, you know, people think back to your, you know, high school biology lab with, where something's preserved in formaldehyde. So think about something preserved like that, but then also encased in wax. And this is done really historically for pathologists, right? So they can, they put it in this form. So not only does it preserve the tissue, but... It can be sliced off very thinly, stained, and then looked at under a microscope. So it's really great for that purpose, but it's not great at all if you're trying to um, extract RNA and DNA from that. And so we've been able to combine not only techniques which allow us to get really high quality RNA out of those, the 95% of clinical specimens which are stored in that way, but also pairing that with sophisticated software which allows us to interpret that RNA data in a way that's clinically meaningful. So it's one thing to be able to generate good data, that's part of the process, but by pairing that molecular process with a sophisticated software system, we're able to give much more information and much more interpretation to uh, to the end user, to the the doctor or to the drug developer. And and so your business is also building out that software to, to, to feed into that analysis. Absolutely, and we've really found that controlling the entire process, uh, both the molecular and the software pieces are essential to getting a good result. A lot of people have thought about trying to approach this problem on one side or the other only. And there's so much variability in the different techniques that you can apply that, and particularly we talked about the challenges of working with these um, poor quality, low quality uh, uh, clinical specimens. Um, you really have to be very thoughtful about which technique you use on, on the, in the laboratory to extract that RNA and then pairing it with a software that expects a particular output. So the whole integrated process we're finding gives a much cleaner more sensitive and accurate result. And so what's 10 years out? So we are at the very beginning of an incredible era. We look back to the human genome sequence and the this new tech, high throughput sequencing technology being 10, 15, 20 years old. Already we've seen an impact in our ability to practice medicine today from that. The clearest way I can explain it, the, the best analogy I've found, is to think about what a personal computer was like in 1987. So in 1987 it was very primitive by, by today's standard, maybe even just a monochrome screen, not even a color screen, big, heavy, low power, no internet. Think about the impact that computers have had on our lives, 
over the last 30 years. It's hard to imagine the countless ways in which our lives are different because of, of the development of computers over that 30-year period. So today for genomics and particularly for applying RNA to, in the, to medicine, we're kind of like at 1987 today with that. So think about in the course of the next 10, 20, 30 years, how much of an impact uh, computers had over, over a 30 year span, mm -hmm. the same kind of impact I expect to see uh, from, from genomics and medicine over the next 30 years. It's and, really going to be truly amazing. And are you the Apple, the Microsoft, the Amazon of the? Well, we, we certainly think that we are moving this forward faster than anybody else. And the great thing is that as we're pursuing RNA's potential in medicine, there are lots of other companies doing equally amazing things in other areas. I think about the impact that genomics is having in agriculture and our food supply. Um, that's going to have a tremendous impact, and it is already on on how you know our daily lives are led. And so there are all these multiple fronts in which this technology is being applied that are going to be absolutely incredible. And this is, I'll, I'll just say, to put a plug for St. Louis on this, is that the fascinating thing here is, is the human genome was done here. The technology is being commercialized here and up in Boston. And that the, it flows easily between agriculture and, and uh, human. And it's, very, it's great because we can take talented people and just sort of they can wander back and forth and have got 20, 30 years of legacy of what it was like in 1998 to do this, what it's like today, and sort of gives you a sort of a sense of the momentum There's a, of the it, technology. A, absolutely. And, we, yeah, we, we are fortunate sitting here in, in a city which has – uh, some of the deepest talent pool in this area and in the world to be able to see all this happening around us. So every startup needs a customer, even one that's doing cutting edge work like this. So is your, because customers help you really figure out how to reduce a, a, a product to practice. Who are you looking for to be your customers at this point to help Cofactor reach that next level? So today we're partnering with clinical researchers and pharmaceutical companies doing some of the most innovative work, uh, research hospitals, institutions who are running clinical trials, really focused on immuno-oncology, who are looking to use our technology to understand better their patients. And so those are the people that we'd love to connect with to help them understand, to apply this technology, to move their drug development programs faster to be able to understand the right treatments for their patients. That's our, our, uh, our user base. Those are the people that are helping us develop our so products. So if a patient or somebody around a patient is being treated by immunotherapy, tell your clinician. <laughs> if you're a clinician, tell right. your, tell <laughs> your uh, pharmaceutical company. And, and because you, you get better by getting the pressure right. from those people to develop better answers for them. Right. Like every, like every company, we learn best from the people who use and love our products, and they help us to make them better, make the next generation um, even more effective for them. And so we're no different. 
and we um, have clinical studies underway right now, uh, which are allowing us to um, get that information from some of the, the brightest minds in, in the country. And we're always looking for more people like that who are interested in engaging with us um, to, uh, to learn from them and to help them with the challenges that they're facing in understanding their patients. Great. Thank you for your time. We're going to do this again because there's a lot more to talk about and we got we're not going to do it over 20 years, but over a shorter period of time. But thank you very much for your time. Thanks for everything you're doing at Cofactor. We've really enjoyed the journey that you're on and glad to be part of it. Thank you, Carter. Great. Thank you for listening to this episode of Innovation Anarchy. To subscribe, go to iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Stay tuned for more conversations about venture, innovation, and entrepreneurship.